Welcome to the Rich Report, a podcast with news and information on high-performance computing. Today, my guest is from NAG, that's the Numerical Algorithms Group, and uh, it's Andrew Jones. How are you doing today, Andrew? I'm good. Hi, Rich. Well, well thanks for coming on, Andrew. You, you know, you gave a talk recently at the HPC User Forum, and uh, I thought it was really good that we should capture it for our podcast audience. S- so what are you going to tell us about today? So we're going to talk about some uh, lessons that we've learned from doing around 40 different HPC uh, strategy and acquisition projects over the years. And I thought it'd be useful to draw out some uh, common experiences and ideas from those. Sounds good. Well, I brought your slides up. Why don't we start there? Okay, sure. So um, I guess the first question that we, uh, we should address is who is we and who's done these projects? So, um, and this is something we've done in partnership with our colleagues at Red Oak Consulting. So, NAG, Numerical Algorithms Group, is around 45 years old. We're an independent organization, and it's a surprise to some that we're a non-profit organization. Um, And we have this uh, corporate structure that means not only are we independent now, but we're guaranteed independent, essentially, for forever. There isn't a mechanism to buy us. We have no shareholders. The company owns its own shares. We have this wonderfully independent structure. We have uh, a lot of expertise and experience in high-performance computing, in algorithms, development of algorithms, and in uh, robust numerical software engineering. And that has been delivered over the years to our customers through consulting, through services, through training courses, and through software products. And it's the software products, and in particular the uh, NAG math library and the NAG compiler, for which we're best known, I guess. Our colleagues at Red Oak Consulting um, have been around for about 20 years. They're also a small independent uh, HPC firm based in the UK. They have expertise in high-performance computing, uh, in particular in project delivery and working in a classified environment. And they've delivered consulting services in this environment for like 20 years. So between the two of us, we have expertise and experience in high-performance computing that is as good as anywhere else on the planet. Um, between us, we, we do deliver a range of things, but I'd like to highlight a couple of those that are relevant to the rest of the talk. So we develop and review HPC strategies on behalf of our clients, helping them to plan where they're going to go in HPC, how they're going to make use of HPC technologies, how to build services around uh, near hardware, and so on, and how to build, how to justify the investments and build investment cases, business cases, and total cost of ownership models, and all of the stuff that goes with it. We help our, quest- our clients answer questions such as, how do I compare with best practice in HPC? Um, you know, which parts of my facility are operating as well as they could? What parts of our service could be improved and could be done better? And of course, often clients are really interested in how they compare, not just to their peers, but to potential competitors and, and they use the HPC. Um, probably the biggest part of what we do is helping clients ensure best value in buying a HPC system, so it's helping with the acquisition process. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in, in detail. That's really where the focus of this presentation comes from. We do projects such as helping customers make the code go faster, making the code better, running support services, doing project management, um, and so on. And I guess the other one I'd, I'd uh, comment on particularly is that we help people evaluate and adopt new technologies, and that's going to be particularly topical if we look forward to supercomputing 
2015 in Austin next week, uh, where people may well be looking at choosing between GPU devices or Leon Phi devices or different kinds of computer architecture to solve the problem. That's something we help in a very impartial way for customers to make decisions. We provide training courses uh, across a range of different areas in HPC. Like most HPC centers expertise, we will provide training courses in the various aspects of programming high-performance computing. But perhaps um, slightly unusually, and, and, or maybe unique even, um, we offer a lot of training courses aimed at the, the management levels in HPC, not just the programmers. So things like essential HPC for the R&D manager or for the vice president of engineering who has to sign off on the R&D budget, or the HPC budget. Um, we offer training on HPC acquisition process, uh, both in a general sense and also specific to um, European procurement, for example, uh, the legislation rules you have to buy them. Uh, we offer training courses on benchmarking, how you do technical benchmarking in the HPC world and how to make use of it and things to worry about, gotchas and so on. And also some training available on service planning and delivery, how do you architect a service around the hardware so that it's a full user experience. So with that in mind, which 40 projects are we talking about learning the lessons from? So we did a little bit of a counter between ourselves and our friends at Red Oak. And we easily counted 40 uh, different projects that were either related to advising customers on HPC strategy or an acquisition support um, that we've delivered over the last decade or so. Those projects have been um, around the world. So we could think of examples in the UK, in the USA, in Europe, uh, in Africa, Middle East, Australia, West Asia. Um, plenty of examples across industry, uh, government and academia. And the sizes of those projects were quite varied as well. So the smallest one we got involved in was the, where the customer was looking to spend of the order of $100,000, um, all the way through to projects where the customer was looking to spend of the order of $100 million. Um, and the, the very small projects are fairly rare. Um, the big ones are rare, but not as rare. Um, and of course, the typical project is somewhere in the, mid in the middle of that, um, and a handful of millions of dollars or maybe a little larger. But the interesting thing is if we add up those projects that we've been involved in, um, then we have been involved in advising in one way or another uh, nearly a billion dollars of uh, HPC spend uh, over the last decade or so, um, which is quite a significant impact on the market. So with that quick intro, let's move on to some of the lessons. These are in no particular order, but these are just some of the things we would draw out from having taken part in those wide range of HPC projects across a wide range of different customer environments and cultures. So we tend to jump to thinking about procurement, um, the buying part of the machine, of buying or acquiring the machine. But that's only one part of the process of course. Uh, we need to um, start by thinking about developing the strategy for which that procurement is going to fit in. Um, why are you buying a machine? What's the business case for it? How do you want to go about doing it? What kind of service are you going to deliver to users? So what's, what's the reason for it? And what's the, the plan for making a, a service that's going to deliver the best value to users? You need to validate that strategy, usually by engaging with the stakeholders. And from that, there usually follows an investment case, market research to figure out whether the market can deliver what you're hoping for the amount of money you've got to spend. You need to worry about things like planning the infrastructure. Can the data center take it, or does it need investment and modernization? Um, plan your procurement process, the timing, and how you're going to go about doing it. 
you've got to persuade somebody to uh, give you the money to go ahead with it. Then you've got the little fun bit of the procurement process. You've got maybe to do the infrastructure work there afterwards. You've got to commission the system. Then you've got to do acceptance testing, which is being able to demonstrate um, to your stakeholders that the money has been used to buy what it was you promised it was going to be used to buy. And also to test the very simple fact that the vendor has delivered what they promised they were going to do in the bid. Um, you need to architect a user service and support mechanism around that so that users don't just get handed a, a blank piece of hardware and told to get on with it. And then you need to do things beyond that, such as measure the effectiveness of the service, report it back to your stakeholders, prove the value of the investment so that next time you come to ask for some more money for the upgrade of the facilities or to enhance user capability in another way, you've got a strong position to do so because you've collected and proved the value of the previous investment. So procurement is one tiny step in the middle. The good news, of course, is that NAG and Red Oak can help with all of those steps. One of the, my favorite lessons um, that I draw out when I do this presentation is the stakeholders. Um, people tend to view stakeholder management as a nice little thing to do on the side of a project and not really important. When you are going to spend 50 or $100 million on a HPC system, um, the stakeholders become extremely important. Um, what I advise people to do is to build a list, an explicit list, check you've included everyone. And by that, I mean build a list of individuals. The stakeholders are always people. They may represent organizations, but at the end of the day, it's always an individual who can be responsible, is going to articulate that organization's uh, interests. So a stakeholder list is a list of individuals. Obviously, check you've included everybody. Understand the politics of the individual stakeholders. Um, understand how they relate to each other. Understand what petty um, or non-petty or very realistic things they bring from past experience. Um, when you're about to sign a contract with the winning vendor, is not the time to find out that your vice president of engineering has refused to ever buy a system from vendor X again. You need to understand that kind of bias right up front. If somebody's got a very good reason why they will never do business with XYZ again, or if somebody's got a good reason why vendor uh, B should have a, a preference in the process, perhaps because they're about to make a major investment in a, in a co-research center in another part of the organization. And these are the kind of things you need to understand early in the process. Um, clearly engage early and often with the stakeholders so that you understand the process and there are no surprises along it. And learn to communicate optimally with each stakeholder. And this is quite important because different stakeholders have different requirements. Some will just want to know what's going well with the project. Some will just want to know what's going wrong in the project. Some will just be interested in a high level where are you up to, are you up to your um, level of progress or not. Others will wish to know in every bit of detail what's going on and the technical justification for every decision you made along the process. And they want to dig into the benchmark, for example. So learn to understand that different stakeholders are going to need different communication patterns. The value of getting this right is that if you do it well, your stakeholder management process, then your stakeholders will become extremely valuable support throughout the process. They will not be seen as a barrier mm -hmm. to the process or something you have to do and manage. It will, you will soon come to realize that a good, well-managed stakeholders become a rock upon which you can really rely and trust when you need it throughout the process. Um, because things will go wrong, and having a good set of people backing you up is extremely valuable. So another problem that we usually identify within uh, the early stages of uh, high-performance computing acquisition projects in particular 
Uh, but across the whole process, is people, is individuals. And it translates something roughly like this. Um, I'm really clever. How hard can this be, uh, buying a HPC system? So I'm, you know, perhaps you might be, I'm a very good professor of uh, astrophysics, or I'm a world-famous computational chemistry professor, whatever it is. I'm really good at that. How hard can it be to buy a HPC system? Um, and we've tried to think of a couple of different ways of, of bringing this into play which is, um, you know, if, would you get in a car that was built by people who build cars for a living or by somebody who's very, very bright but has never really bought too many cars, built too many cars in their life? Um, would you get your plumbing fixed by the plumber who only does one job every three years or by the one who has done dozens of similar cars? And it's just a simple way of saying that experience counts, especially if what you're going to undertake is a complex project that has got um, a lot of infrastructure work associated with it uh, evaluating different technologies and um, liaising with different stakeholders, looking at different user requirements and so on. Um, the real answer is yes, it can be very hard and it may not be apparent up front how hard it is. So getting people to understand that the HPC acquisition is a specialism in itself can often be a challenge in this project. And the thing that we often remind people of is to remember that the suppliers have the advantage they do this much, much more often, and so they're much, much more experienced at this process. And that means that they're always going to have the upper hand in any negotiation, um, simply because they do it more often, especially through the process that's led by somebody who only buys one system every six years. Um, suppliers are doing six per year. So another interesting way to think about it is to think about it just right in real life. If you're going to buy yourself a new car, um, you'd understand how much money you had to spend. You'd understand your needs. You'd understand your wants, which, of course, are hardly ever the same as your needs and wants are hardly ever the same. Um, you would do some research before talking to the salespeople. You would make sure you know whether your $30,000 would buy you a scrap car or a top-end SUV. You would explore and compare alternatives. You wouldn't buy just based on the sales pitch of the, the salesman at the um, car garage, you'd take a test drive or you'd take a tour or you'd look into the vehicle um, in more depth. And of course, you'd make sure it works properly when it's delivered. And I'm sure that the listeners can very readily relate those aspects to the purchase uh, of the HPC system and what you need to do beforehand in terms of planning. But there are an awful lot of people out there who take a view that would be something like um, walk up to the nearest car showroom point at one of the cars and go, how much? Oh, okay, I'll take one of those. In other words, that intelligence you apply in real life sometimes goes missing when people are uh, buying really quite expensive uh, facilities. Just just think of some real life experience it brings to them. Um, this is a favorite uh, lesson from our friends at Red Oak Consulting. And that is, don't forget the infrastructure, uh, nor assume that it will be fine or it will, we'll be able to fix it later. Um, if we look at those uh, 40-odd projects that we've been involved in, probably over half of them have been um, subject to potential delays caused by infrastructure problems, in fact, well over half of them. They haven't all experienced delays because we've been able to manage them, but um, the potential of a delay by infrastructure problems um, comes up extremely regularly, even when you planned around it. Um, HPC infrastructure is very hard for the majority of data center people to, um, to deal with. Everybody underestimates how hard it is. 
and everybody underestimates how hard it is from traditional IT infrastructure. Um, the, the, the requirements on power and cooling and so on can be significantly more extreme than typical data center requirements. So don't just assume the infrastructure will be fine. Plan right up front to figure out how to deal with that. It's very easy in the world of HPC where a lot of the people leading the processes are very much technical people with a technical background. Um, like myself, we very easily fall into the trap of becoming what I call a technical snob. In other words, we tend to assume that, well, we'll pick the best system based on the performance or the needs of the architecture or whatever it is. Um, and we tend to forget the value of the non-technical input in the process. And experience has taught us very much that you must always recognize the value of the non-technical input, uh, both into the decision of which solution to go with, but also into the process of the the acquisition process itself. And that includes people like the legal representatives, contracts, expertise, um, even insurance, uh, logistics, how is the system going to get delivered to your site and so on, um, how is it going to get into the data center. Uh, administration, just coordinating everything could be quite a significant challenge sometimes. So technical performance should only ever be one part of the business decision to acquire a HPC system. It's very important to remember that it is only one part um, and we should never be the, the dominant part and to the exclusion of everything else. Having said that, it is, of course, a significant part of it. The technical benchmarking does become a significant part of deciding which system to go with. Um, and benchmarking is a, is a method that enables the procurement decision to include quantifiable information on the cost or the performance of a potential solution. Um, it estimates the performance of the system on specific codes and specific data sets, and it's important to realize that. Um, running a benchmarking exercise will never tell you whether system A is better than system B. It will only tell you whether system A is better than system B on the specific applications you're testing, under the specific conditions you're testing. So it's quite a, a limited um, exercise in some ways, but it does deliver real value because it's still better than um, having no quantifiable performance information. The most useful part of the benchmarking exercise is actually not so much deciding which solution to pick, but in making sure that the delivered solution matches the promises. In other words, when you're running the procurement process, make sure that process requires bidders to commit contractually to a performance target that is measured by benchmarker applications. Um, when you, there's no point having a benchmarking process that essentially translates to what is the best guess and what is the best hope of what the system might achieve under ideal conditions. That is just a waste of time of everybody doing the evaluation process, of the vendor's benchmarking team, and of everybody else. Make sure the benchmarking is done under realistic configurations, so you know, running under a batch system, running with non-exclusive um, access to the system, and things like that. Um, and as I said, it's important to make sure that whatever benchmarking results that you use to choose between systems in the bidding process is the benchmark performance figures that that vendor is going to then have to commit to contractually when they sign the contract with you to deliver the system. Um, there's no point getting their best efforts in one case and then just a much shorter version of the effort of the contract. It's just not fair to your stakeholders. And the other little throwaway comment is don't forget benchmarking the I.O. system um, since that's often one of the performance roadblocks in the application. So, 
consider the bidders in the process. Um, much as we like to believe it, the bidders don't have an infinite budget. Um, they do wish to make some money from your business. They are looking to make a profit. Um, they're not just doing bidding for your business to be kind to you and give you a system. Um, recognize that it costs uh, money and time for the vendor to put a bid together. Um, even if they don't win, it's going to cost them money. Um, and if they win, there's a separate business and they can cost the bidding and the project management and so on. I recognize that the process costs time and money for the, the vendor too. Um, and that's important when you're considering benchmarking as well. It can cost a lot of money and a lot of time to do benchmarking to do it well. And so when you're considering how complex your benchmarking suite needs to be, um, you need to consider that the more complex you make it, the, the more it's going to cost the vendor to deliver against those benchmarks. And therefore, the less money they have available to um, deliver on the, the solution that they're, that they're bidding you. Um, bearing in mind, of course, that vendors will only bid if they think they can win. Um, they cost them money, so they're not going to waste that money if they think up front that they haven't got any chance whatsoever of winning the process. So you need to make sure you architect a process that is viable for multiple bidders to win. Um, you do need to be aware that vendors uh, or bidders might walk away, um, both before the process, they might decide not to bid. During the process, they may be negotiating with you along the way and then decide that we can't reach a mutual conclusion, or they may decide that bid isn't going to win after all, and so therefore they may decide to walk away. And of course, as we're aware, well aware from some high-profile examples of the HPC community, vendors have been known to wait, walk away after having won the bidding process and during the delivery phase as well. So do be aware that those are real risks risk projects. And ask yourself, what happens if you run a procurement process and you end up with no bid? It does happen. Um, or no bids that are credible, or no bids that you're willing to accept. What happens if you run a procurement process and you end up with only one credible bid? That's perhaps more dangerous because it's harder to cancel the process um, when you have a viable solution on the table. And yet, if that winning bidder finds out that they're the only bidder on the table, then they've got a much stronger negotiating position than you'd like them to have. But you have a plan for that situation. Bid scoring. Um, do you have your, is your bid scoring defensible? In other words, is it defensible uh, both to your stakeholders and also to the other bidders who are going to potentially be interested in challenging a losing bidder if they're not comfortable with your scoring system? Is it robust? Um, do you have it, do you understand your sensitivity to changes in the bids? In other words, do you understand whether um, your bid scoring system treats four gigabytes of memory as a significant change from two gigabytes of memory to core or not? Is that the trivial change and, or the big change? You need to understand how your bid scoring treats individual changes and how that makes the overall result of the win bidder change. So understand the sensitivity and scoring system. As I said, make sure it's accepted by the stakeholders. Make sure that it's fixed and set before the RFP uh, or the ITP closes. Um, that's good practice uh, for legal protection. But it's also common sense. Um, you do not want to be in a situation where you're trying to evolve the scoring after the, uh, the, um, the bids are in and you can be accused of adjusting it to suit the bid that you want. Along those same lines, um, it is very fair to be realistic about different suppliers. Even under uh, most procurement, public procurement legislation uh, rules, you are allowed to score different suppliers differently based on different risks. So some suppliers are easier to deal with than others, and that's just a fact of life. It is perfectly fair to score um, 
commercial discussions as part of the bid evaluation. Uh, in other words, do we believe that there is a significant delivery risk uh, in timescale terms from dealing with vendor A compared to vendor B because we know that vendor A has got um, a, a much larger number of challenges with our um, draft contract, for example. That's, that's one of the things you can score as a commercial evaluation as part of the risk of the bid. Um, equally, some suppliers are more capable than others, um, and that capability varies according to scale. There are vendors out there who are very, very capable for small systems, but do not have a real uh, capability for large-scale systems. Um, and so, therefore, there's a risk associated with that vendor from, for taking their, their bid on a larger system. And vice versa, there are some who are very good at large systems that don't have the same um, degree of expertise in much smaller systems, perhaps, but with some different requirements on the turnkey aspect of it, the timetabling aspect of it, or whatever. So it is, it is very sensible to be realistic about different suppliers being different and to score those appropriately in the evaluation process. Um, acceptance testing is often something that is left right until the end of the project when you've got your system in place, you've signed the contract, and you're trying to decide um, the, the project management plan for installing the system. That is far too late to be thinking about acceptance testing. Um, the ideal time to do it is during the production of the requirements, the RFP document or the ITT document itself. As you write down each requirement in the RFP, try and understand at that point be tested. Um, and this forms the basis of your requirement, of your acceptance step. So as you're drafting the RFP, um, there will be our acceptance test along with it. How will it be tested? There are some parts of it that will have to be deferred until the, um, the system that you're going to buy is known after all the bids are in. But that should be a small proportion of the overall test, not the bulk of it. Don't rely on things like, I'll know it when I see it, um, as, a, as an acceptance test because that's not useful, it's not fair, it's not provable with the suppliers should there be a dispute, and it's not a particularly good way of demonstrating to your senior management that you spent the company's money well. Um, however, even for the bits that are deferred to once you know what the solution is going to be, um, it is good practice to make sure that those acceptance tests are finalised during the contract discussion. Um, you do not want to get caught up in the trap of uh, a push to get the contract signed, uh, leading to a statement along the lines of each party will act in good faith through the acceptance tests or uh, acceptance tests will agreed mutually uh, afterwards, whatever, you're simply storing up uh, risk and trouble for later. Much better to get the acceptance test defined right up so that everybody's agreed and everybody's clear. So should there be any dispute between the contract, what should be done? Project management. Um, this is a really important one. Um, experience shows that a good quality project management for any sizable HPC installation or upgrade or project um, is really important. Appoint a proper customer-side project manager. Um, don't ask a researcher to take a few days a week out of their day job to project manage the installation of a $20 million supercomputer. That's not a realistic management of your risk of your organization's money. Um, a point of somebody who has particular expertise in project management, somebody who knows what they're doing, either a professional project manager or a HPC person who has spent a significant proportion of their working life project managing the installation of HPC systems. Um, even if you have to contract within uh, for the duration of a few months, it will be money well spent. 
um, which is where you really can um, control the cost of the project, control the timescales of the project, and make sure that things work uh, for later on for the user service. Likewise, getting a, a strong uh, supplier-side project manager uh, is very critical. Insist on having a named person at the contract signature stage. Um, again, it's not something you want to try and defer until later because then you're just adding risk for later, both times first risk and also quality of the individual risk. Um, consider using the same rigor as you would for your own project manager. In other words, you know, have, have an interview with this project manager because the supplier side project manager is going to be responsible for um, delivering the infrastructure to your time, to your budget, uh, and, and delivering a service that is quality, you know, suitable quality to your users. So they have as much um, output and or much influence on what the users will believe as the overall competence of the project as your own in-house project manager. So pay a lot of attention to the project managers on both sides and make sure they're um, properly appointed. This is one of my favorites as well in terms of lessons, um, and that's changing your mind. A lot of people get trapped into their process, uh, and they're very worried about changing their mind or being seen to change their mind um, or back down on anything. Um, whether that is performance targets that evolve uh, through the course of the project or whether it's the requirements that evolve, um, or whether it is simply changing a mind and deciding, no, you can't take such and such a solution, even though it looks like the best one on paper because, or maybe we need to cancel the whole procurement and start again because we're not happy with the results. Um, or maybe we need to enforce a, an artificial three months delay in order to get around certain risks in the technology system. And I think the advice here is don't let pride get in the way of the right business decision. Be really quite ruthless and emotional about what is the best outcome for your organization. Um, clearly, you have to stay within the legal requirements and procurement legislation and all the rest of it. Um, but really be quite ruthless about what is the right business decision or the best project execution that will lead to the best result for your organization um, in the long term, not necessarily in the short term. Make sure pride doesn't get in the way of that. And unfortunately, we're all human, and pride very often does get in the way. Um, as I said, part of that is being prepared to back out or change your mind if it's going to secure value for your organization. Time. Everybody, especially the suppliers, but even more especially the customers, will always be optimistic about timescales. Um, however, as I'm sure you know, the reality of any large complex project is that stuff happens. Something somewhere will go wrong. There's just too many things going on. And you can you can protect against that by having a good risk management plan, having good strong project management plays, having mitigation plans and so on. But something is still going to happen. Stuff happens, which is goes, which is the reality of life. Um, so making sure there is a risk plan, risk management plan, um, and risk time that built into the project plan is really, really important. Never be persuaded that we just have to make it work on time this time. There is no flat time. Um, that is really just storing up risk for later on. Uh, always make sure you have allowed for risk in the project plan. You've allowed for stuff that might happen that might go wrong. And that way, you've got the best chance of delivering the project on time and to quality. Because quite often, quality is the thing that gets sacrificed in order to bring a project back on time when something's gone wrong. And time is one of those things that has a wonderful feature that it's very hard to replace it once it's gone. It's a one-way commodity. Once time's gone, it's gone. So, um, 
to conclude then, uh, or perhaps to refer to this as the biggest lesson, is, is don't rely on how hard can it be, because it turns out like, buying a HPC system um, can be very hard indeed. Experience matters. So ask for help. Benefit from the mistakes and the successes of others. Um, the person you ask for help may well be one of your peers at another organization. It may well be your predecessor at your organization. It may even be one of your competitors. Um, or it may be specialists such as uh, NAG or our colleagues at Red Oak Consulting. So ask for help. Help is out there. Experience is out there. And experience matters. It's really valuable to getting the best results for you, your organization, your stakeholders. And so with that, um, I'd like to uh, thank you for taking the time to listen to me. Um, if you aren't bored enough by what I've had to say already, you can go find that more by engaging with me at HBC Notes on Twitter. Um, and I'm going to turn it over to Rich now. Well, thanks, Andrew. You know, I'm really impressed by the wealth of uh, experience NAG has. I mean, being involved with you know over a billion dollars in procurements. I guess we only have time for one question, but it would be this for me. Uh, do they always follow your advice? <laughs> um, no, of course not, because we only supply we only supply advice and expertise, and it is always up to the customer's judgment whether they wish to take that or not. Ultimately, it is that the customer who has to answer to their management, and does they have to make the decision? And but they they do take advice and they rely on us, but they always have a broader knowledge of our advice, their own advice, other inputs into their decision process. Well, hey, Andrew, I want to thank you once again for uh, sharing this with us, and uh, thanks for coming on the show today. You're welcome. Thanks, Rich. All right, folks, that's it for the Rich Report. Stay tuned for more news and information on high-performance computing.